Hi, it's Fraser here. As regular listeners will know by now, Spiked's podcasts, essays, articles, and videos are free in every sense of the word. Spiked exists to fight for freedom. And in 2020, freedom has never been more threatened. Lockdown threatens our right to free assembly and free movement, while cancel culture and identity politics threaten our right to free speech and free thought. Democracy, that most important right of a free people, is similarly under siege. Spiked wants to challenge these illiberal and authoritarian trends, but we can't do it without your help. It's donations from our listeners and readers that allow us to keep up these fights and to take our message to a growing audience. So, if you haven't already, please consider making a donation to Spiked. One-off donations are fantastic, but regular donations are even better. Just £5 per month can make an enormous difference to our work. Donating to Spiked is really easy to do. Just go to our website at spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. We cannot thank you enough for your support. Now, on with the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week we have Spiked's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, Boris Johnson's green reset, Jeremy Corbyn's loss of the Labour whip and the race to save Christmas. Dominic Cummings leaving the front door at number 10. All of this happens and then within a nanosecond there's now a 10-point green environmental plan. Britain set to ban the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles by 2030. The plan aims to create up to 250,000 highly skilled green jobs. We want to be the Saudi Arabia of wind. We've got huge, huge gusts of wind. Boris Johnson has tried to reset his government after a calamitous year of health, economic and social crises. After weeks of infighting and courtly scuffles, two of Johnson's top advisers, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane, were dramatically ousted from number 10. Both were leading figures in the Vote Leave campaign, known for their abrasive, outspoken style and politics. The new number 10 is said to have a more consensual feel. Part of this reset involves an emphasis on environmentalism and climate change. This week, Johnson announced his 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution and getting the country to net zero carbon emissions. The PM has pledged, among other things, an expansion in wind power and a ban on petrol and diesel cars. Tom, what are your thoughts? No, I think the big green announcement this week was really revealing because there has been a lot of chatter in the wake of the departure of Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane about whether or not the Johnson administration was going to kind of revert back to this kind of hugger husky David Cameron style Toryism, something that his partner Carrie Simmons seems particularly attached to. And whilst a lot of these announcements are akin to the things that were in the Tory manifesto, things that we've seen them discuss before, I mean, the ban on the sale of new diesel and petrol cars that was brought forward five years earlier this year by Boris Johnson. So a lot of this stuff isn't new, but I think the renewed focus on it is very striking. Mm. And I think those people making the argument that this is precisely not what is new northern working class voters are after are completely right about. You know, a lot of these announcements are things which I think on the issue of environmentalism, it's not to say that people, especially people who are, again, those working class voters and some of those left behind constituencies, it's not as if they just reject the environment as an issue full stop. You know, it's not as if they see a wind turbine and feel violently sick at the prospect (laughs) of it. But at the same time, I think they intuit quite 
logically, the fact that a lot of these announcements, first of all, only really generate and animate the interest of people who are quite comfortably off, who can afford to pay a little bit more for their electric car rather than their petrol car. Mm. And at the same time, it's either something that either doesn't really touch their lives or it's something when it does touch their lives, it's about making their lives that little bit tougher. It's about pushing them around to some extent. And I think we see that wrapped up in a lot of this announcement. So you've got the electric cars thing, which has obviously been a big discussion point, but this is something that Bjorn Lomborg has pointed out in the Telegraph this week. You know, Broadly speaking, in terms of the attempts to try and subsidise these cars, to try and actually make them more viable, broadly speaking, that's just been subsidising rich people's second cars. He suggests that in the US, 90% of electric car owners, they already have a fossil fuel driven car. This is just a car they use for short journeys and to feel good about themselves. So again, this is something that won't necessarily touch people apart from not being able to buy those new petrol and diesel cars when the ban comes in. But on the other hand, in the context of the economic crisis that we're in the middle of you know boris johnson saying he's going to create 250,000 new jobs potentially in the green sector might sound good in certain parts of the country that will be affected by that but we also heard this week that even before the second lockdown came in 660,000 hospitality jobs were lost yeah so in the context of all of this aside from the kind of broader arguments around green politics and what the best way to tackle climate change is this is just going to strike a lot of voters as a colossal distraction something that will play very well in London amongst people who will never vote Conservative for a long time in the future, <laughs> but very poorly amongst people who are really struggling at the moment. So whilst it's been a bit of a packed discussion this week about, again, which way the Conservative Party is going to go, I think there's a lot to this argument that this embrace of, again, Cameroonism is really going to mystify, I think, a lot of people who lent their vote to Boris Johnson in December. Yeah, it, it is really striking how much kind of weight has been given to what really amounts to an investment of about £12 billion, which in the context of the pandemic, I mean, the government is spending about a billion pounds a day just down the train, money being flushed away, basically as a result of their mishandling of this of this crisis. And yet at the same time, it is significant because it's an investment in things that will make people's lives more difficult you know, <laughs> banning the sale of petrol and diesel, diesel cars, as you said, this is going to price people off the road. Investment in wind electricity pretty much guarantees that people's energy bills are going to go up and that their energy supply is going to be less reliable. And, you know, the government actually make, it thinks it's a good thing that people should be constantly watching for the price of energy, planning their lives around peaks and troughs in demand and supply as if that's a really viable way to live our lives. You know, that is going to completely screw up people's routines. It means that, you know, potentially if we really do bet the house on wind energy and various renewables, it means you're not going to be able to have that shower in the morning or charge your electric car at night because everyone else is doing it at the same time. It's it's really... You don't you know, think we're going to become the Saudi Arabia of winders? Which is a funny formulation it's, anyway. It's, it's a strange, it's a very strange phrase. I think there's a reason why our ancestors gave up on, on wind power. And that's because they realized, unlike us, they realized that sometimes the wind doesn't blow when you need it to. <laughs> and sometimes it blows too hard. And it's, this is a kind of basic fact that is not going to be got around by any kind of new fancy technology. And then when you consider that the public benefit is precisely net zero to corner phrase, you then do have to wonder, well, who is this for? Other than you know, the people you were suggesting, Tom, the kind of middle class people who will never vote Tory anyway. The people this is really aimed at is not the public, but the kind of international community. It's basically ploughing the furrow for next year's big climate conference in Glasgow. And for God knows what reason, our world leaders take a great deal of pride in basically sacrificing the most on the global stage. They impress each other with these grand ambitions about the climate, but I don't think they impress anyone in the public. And I think that they will impress people even less 
when they realize that the consequences of a lot of these policies are actually probably job losses or higher cost of living and effectively austerity. Ella? For me, the most infuriating thing about all of this is the short termism of all these kinds of policies. I mean, the obsession with banning diesel and petrol cars, which has been going along for a very long time. I mean, we have had the ULES in London. We've had Grant Shapps throughout the pandemic talking about the excitement he has for the process of pedestrianizing areas and how great that is, despite the fact that everyone knows that if you push cars off one road to pedestrianize that area, they end up being backed up and polluting more heavily other areas. And there's been a huge amount of protest around that in certain parts of London and around Hackney and Islington, for example. But the kind of short-termism of all of this is really frustrating because as Tom says, it's not like anyone has anything against being more green. But the question is, is it going to make people's quality of life better? And in order for you to have a better relationship with the environment that also means progress in a very real sense in terms of improving people's quality of life, then you have to get rid of this short-termist approach. You have to think of big ideas. It just seems incredibly obvious. The most obvious policy and big project to go with would be if you want to make people greener and more environmentally friendly and give them better access to resources, why not have a big public project, well-funded and innovative and well-resourced around infrastructure, around transport, you know, double, triple the number of buses that run in inner cities, build rail links and other kind of transport links out to all the different regional parts of the country, which are so sorely lacking in public infrastructure, in transport. All of these things could create jobs, could mean that you have a, a decrease in the number of cars being used. You know, everyone's a winner, everyone's happy. But in order to do that kind of thing, you need to have the political will to take on some big issues. I mean, the same is with housing. Ben Pyle mentioned in his spiked column this week about the push to replace boilers with heat pumps in houses, which as he points out, is going to come at a great personal cost to the individual. And these things aren't going to necessarily be subsidised to the extent to which they would mean that people won't lose out. But I mean, what about building better, more modern, more heat efficient homes? What about building more houses? There we are back at the housing debate. I mean, the, the, the whole point is these things can't just be done on a tick box approach to policy. And if I may say, talking about the way in which these things are implemented, I mean, Tom has already mentioned the democracy question in all of this, which is that all these red wall voters that keep being talked about um, after the general election were not getting behind the Tories to go on a big kind of green push. They wanted better equipment, better resources and more jobs for their cities and for their hometowns. But it strikes me that government is increasingly looking like kind of court politics. I think that the intervention of Carrie Simmons, Boris Johnson's fiance in all of this is really quite remarkable and should be commented on more because, you know, it's like kind of princely attitudes. Whichever cabinet minister or best friend or fiance has the ear of Boris Johnson last is the person that he goes with. He's got completely empty in terms of his own political leanings and his own political viewpoints. And that's a really big problem for democracy because we are not in kind of Tudor times or some kind of Shakespearean invention. We are meant to be living in a democracy in which voters decide which way the government goes. And this particular 
obsession with green policy and green energy, which, you know, pleases all the right kind of people in terms of media circles and upper middle class circles, really shows the extent to which the government is out of touch with what, you know, no matter what they call themselves, the people's parliament or anything like that, are out of touch with what the average voter wants and needs. Mm. Tom? There's been so much discussion about Dominic Cummings over recent years, the supposedly nefarious kind of authoritarian hold he holds over government. But to large part, that wasn't only, you know, the conditions of his being employed there. He obviously wanted to run things and felt like he could force through his agenda in a way that the Whitehall machine otherwise wouldn't be able to or would actually resist doing. But broadly speaking, that's a product of the kind of absence that is Boris Johnson, as Ella was talking about, is this, again, characterization of him, even among people who are relatively friendly to him, that he basically agrees with the last person he spoke to. And that's a real problem. Again, you know, prime ministers or leading politicians, they don't necessarily have to have everything figured out. There's always a role for advisors. There's always been a bit of a court to some extent. People do hold power bases and do exert influence. But at the same time, they should come into it with certain principles with a view with a vision as to how the country should be run and what it is that they want to achieve and if he is just this kind of empty vessel mm. that's really really bad it's it's bad in terms of again just him actually delivering on what it is he was voted in to do but it's also bad in in respect to democracy again he should be able to put his positions out there be elected upon them and then deliver them but if he's constantly just kind of shifting in the wind that's going to be a, a huge huge problem i think we've seen over the course of the coronavirus crisis just how light on principles he actually is. This is a man, as we've said many times, who was ludicrously talked up as some sort of Merry England libertarian, yet put the whole nation under house arrest, you know, and there's now a discussion which we'll come to later about whether or not we'll essentially be allowed to have Christmas for a couple of days. So again, the kind of absence at the heart of government is the kind of political absence at the heart of Boris Johnson, really, which doesn't necessarily stand us in good stead, given all of the huge crises that we're going to have to confront in the near term. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Everyone these days should be using a virtual private network. You may think your data is safe and private, but even in incognito mode, it isn't. Internet service providers like BT or Sky know every single website you visit. ISPs in the UK are required by law to store all your metadata for at least a year. The best way to safeguard your privacy is by using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet, so your online activity can't be seen by anyone. And it really is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, click one button, and it's on. ExpressVPN is rated the number one virtual private network by CNET, Wired, and The Verge. It works on laptops, phones, even routers, so everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can be protected. I use ExpressVPN whenever I'm on the internet using my laptop. It's quick to set up, easy to use, and it doesn't interfere with your internet speed. It also allows me to access websites, articles, and streaming services that are only supposed to be accessible in other countries. There's a whole world of internet content that ExpressVPN can open up. So, Secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash spiked today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash spiked. And you can get an extra three months for free. Expressvpn.com slash spiked. Do 
Jeremy Corbyn has had his membership of the Labour Party reinstated three weeks after it was rescinded, following his response to the EHRC report on anti-Semitism in Labour. But Keir Starmer has refused to reinstate the Labour whip, meaning the former Labour leader does not sit in Parliament as a Labour MP. Last month, Corbyn said that while one anti-Semite in Labour is one too many, the problem of anti-Semitism had been overstated by his opponents inside and outside the party. This, many argued, was an unacceptable attempt to minimise the issue. Tom, what have you made of this latest row? Oh, it's been completely ridiculous. I thought that the latest development, which, as you say, is Keir Starmer refusing to return the whip to Jeremy Corbyn, but keeping it under constant review, I think is the most Keir Starmer thing he's ever actually said, (laughs) you know, kind of perennial fence sitter in relation to this. I think in many respects... Keir Starmer and the Labour Party didn't have much option. Obviously, this was a decision by the NEC, but still, in terms of however much we, we should criticise Jeremy Corbyn for his handling of anti-Semitism, his incredibly high tolerance of anti-Semites, he has not said anything explicitly or indulged explicitly in anti-Semitism. And if you create a precedent whereby people disagreeing on the extent of a problem and how to tackle it should be grounds for expelling you from a party, I don't think that's good for party democracy. But at the same time, I don't think that should spare us from criticising Jeremy Corbyn very heavily for his handling of the anti-Semitism issue. And if you even look at those statements he put out, as you say, he was first suspended for saying that the problem of anti-Semitism had been exaggerated. He then put out this non-apology this week, which in these very Weasley words said that no one should say that concerns about anti-Semitism are exaggerated. So he's not really changed his position in respect to this whatsoever. And what's striking is that we've almost become kind of slightly inured to these allegations, to the kind of steady stream of stories in the press about Labour Party members posting vile anti-Semitic memes and whatnot. But again, his role in allowing this stuff to fester in recent years is really, really serious. And also his own political track record, which is very, very murky. We've kind of gone hoarse discussing these examples, but again, referring to Hamas and Hezbollah as your friends, Mm. again, inviting Raid Salah, who was a cleric who was actually prosecuted in Israel for repeating the blood libel calling him an honoured friend and inviting him to tea in the House of Commons. This is all very serious in the way in which that wing of the Labour Party have, in one way or another, wittingly or unwittingly, given a green light to anti-Semitism dressed up as criticism of Israel within their own midst, has been really, really shameful. And it's been so interesting to see so many Labour members on the Corbyn Easter side and the Momentumites, etc., get so exercised about the 19-day suspension of Jeremy Corbyn from the party, where they barely raised a peep of concern about the not only Labour members, but Labour MPs who were driven out of the party purely for trying to make a stand against anti-Semitism. So again, the victimology of Corbyn Easters in this situation is, is remarkable, but this is what we've come to expect from them, I dare say. Yeah. Ella? I think James Hartfield put it really well in his column for Spiked this week, where he made the point that the Labour Party's problem with the question of anti-Semitism is that they treat it like a disciplinary matter rather than a political problem. And that really is the key point. Mm. It's been incredibly frustrating watching this sort of pantomime of, will he go? Will he not go? Is he ousted? Is he not ousted around Corbyn? And the kind of really petty political spats that are going around the fringes of this whole discussion about this one individual MP who sure is the ex-leader of the Labour Party. But all of it points to the the conclusion that you have to make, which is that this party is really not taking this issue seriously. I mean, compounded by the fact that, you know, we had in 2016, there was the report by Shami Chakrabarti around Labour's anti-Semitism problem that basically 
said there wasn't really a problem. This EHRC report has said that there is definitively a problem, but it has framed it in these very technical terms in terms of in what instances things happened that were illegal. But all of that is kind of, it is a very technocratic approach to something which is actually a very in-depth and dug-in political issue because the the question you have to ask the Labour Party is, fine, you've kicked out the right people, or maybe you haven't kicked out the right people. Fine, you're making all the right statements at press conferences. Sure, Keir Starmer is cutting the right kind of figure in terms of someone who looks as this sort of lawyer figure, like he's going to treat this issue seriously. But are you actually dealing with it on the political level? Which means, are you dealing with the fact that many people who are still within the groups of Labour supporters and Labour members feel even more confident than ever that they actually their convictions are right, that really the whole fuss around anti-Semitism was just a political ploy to move against the Corbynista Labour left section of that party, that actually it's it's fine to talk about a sort of fetishistic hatred of Israel above all other states and that, you know, you don't even have to go down the kind of extreme blood libel route, but this a simmering that we've talked about lots of times on this podcast before, simmering, underlying, very ignorant form of anti-capitalism that talks about Jews as being exceedingly wealthy and in control of politics and money and all of that, that is just a hop, skip and a jump to the worst kind of anti-Semitism out there. Are you dealing with any of that? Are you having those hard discussions? Are you making those political arguments? Are you targeting it at its root? And I think most people are probably convinced that they're not, that this is all uh, an exercise in trying to paper over the cracks. And the broader question you have to ask is, what is the future of the Labour Party? I've wished for its demise many times on this podcast and elsewhere, because I think that it is a party that doesn't serve the left and also doesn't serve in any kind of you know proper opposition to the Tories. I mean, the pandemic's been evidence of that enough. But what is the future of the Labour Party? Is it just going to continue to have this sort of war between that kind of quasi-Blairite side and the Corbyn movement that sort of wasn't. Are they going to get their act together and start dealing with some of the big political issues? They've been wrong on everything for the last few years, whether it's Brexit, whether it's the sort of public mood around lockdown and the tone around restrictions. What do they stand for? What are they good for? Other than this really unedifying, really ugly row around anti-Semitism that they cannot fix. What is the future of the Labour Party? I mean, it looks pretty bleak. And actually, one of the things that this whole row has brought home is is just the complete fall from grace of the of the Labour left. I mean, if you think this time last year, you know, they were in power in the Labour Party. They persuaded themselves that they were the real winners of the 2017 election. They were, you know, gearing up to bring socialism to the masses in their minds. <laughs> um, and now they're, you know, they're struggling to even have their own ex-leader having a role in the Parliamentary Labour Party. I mean, it is quite an astonishing fall. And on the one hand, you could say that's sad. On the other hand, they deserve it for betraying the country so badly on on the twin issues of Brexit and anti-Semitism and various other issues. But you do wonder, you know, where do they go? Because at the end of the day, you do know that no matter how much punishment they take, no matter how much they're sidelined from the leadership, they're still going to be campaigning for the Labour Party. Mm. They're still going to be supporting the Labour Party. There's almost no way out for them because they've they've just invested everything they have in this, as far as we're concerned, you know, completely backward and dead party. No, it's completely pathetic. But it's also, that's what the Labour left has, has become. They're primarily interested in trying to previously take control, now really exert some influence over the Labour Party. You mm. know, principles like, you know, 
Brexit should be implemented or moral issues like anti-Semitism can kind of go hang in the pursuit of all of this. But at the same time, I think it's also important just on the issue of anti-Semitism to knock down this argument still being made by Corbynistas, which is to suggest that the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is just a result of the issue of anti-Semitism in society more broadly. That Mm. if there's anti-Semitism in society, you're going to see some of it wash into the Labour Party. And I think it's really important that we recognise that this is a very distinct form of anti-Semitism, this left anti-Semitism, this socialism of fools that has effectively kind of rehabilitated some of the most age-old anti-Semitic tropes about Jews running the world, or even in some cases, even a version of the blood libel in the form of anti-Israel sentiment, the idea that Israel runs world affairs, or the idea that Israel delights in killing Palestinian children, as you see some of the more vocal campaigners make arguments like that. And it's really important that if we're talking about confronting this on a political level, you have to recognise that this is a left-wing, distinct form of it. And that to just pretend that, again, some of it is washed into the Labour Party because it's just washing around society in general will get people further away from being able to take that head on, I think. You're listening to The Spikes Podcast. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the show. If that's the case, why not tell other people about it? You could share the episode on social media Or you can give us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. That way you can help new listeners to find us and it won't take any more than a few seconds. Help spread the word about the Spiked podcast today by sharing us on social media or giving us a rating and a review with your podcast provider. Now, back to the show. The government is currently considering whether to allow households to mix for five days over the Christmas holidays. Sage scientists have been modelling the effects of expanding the rule of six and allowing multiple households to bubble together. The medical director of Test and Trace has suggested that we can have five days of Christmas freedom in exchange for an extra month of lockdown. Other public health experts have said that we should be opening presents outdoors and we should only gather indoors if we leave all the windows open. Ella, uh, what are your thoughts? (laughs) Well, we'll stick with that quote that was from Professor Gabriel Scali, who's a member of Independent Sage and a very vocal supporter of lockdown, not just supporter of lockdown, actually, but someone who really calls for further and more stringent restrictions. If you were being uncharitable, you'd call him an alarmist. But he was quoted as saying, yes, that you should really be encouraging families to go out and open their presence if they want to meet up with their families outside under a tree in the garden. And he got very upset about the fact that some people took the mick out of him for this. But he retorted by saying, I said in a garden, if you have one, he pointed to the fact that 88% of people, according to ONS data, have access to a garden, failed to point out that actually most of those people will have access to a shared garden. And so, you know, if the prospect of opening your presence outside in the cold under a tree wasn't very appealing, how about doing it in front of all your neighbours looking at you in your pyjamas? The reason why this sort of rather stupid intervention from Scali is important is because it's indicative of a wider issue with many public health experts, in quote marks there, that they just have no sense of what is important to people. They have no sense actually of what most people's normal behaviour is. You know, Part of the problem of talking about people in their gardens is precisely because lots of people don't have access to big open spaces, you know, never mind it being freezing in December, even if this was in the height of summer and we were talking about a completely different public holiday. The whole point is many people do not have the resources 
and access to the spaces to socially distance and be very good, you know, COVID secure citizens in the way that, you know, your average middle class person did. We had this throughout the lockdown when people were talking about how selfish it was that so many were going to the beaches and the parks, all from the comfort of their palatial wall gardens where they could, you know, self-isolate and, and be very safe to their heart's content without going absolutely mad being stuck in four walls with, you know, six or seven other people. But more broadly, the government doesn't seem to, and these public health experts don't seem to understand why these times are important to people. And it was the exact same as it happens earlier in the year with Diwali, and it was the exact same with Eid, where it's not just about having a a piss up. It's not just even about getting together over the Christmas period. It's about people wanting to meet up socially and that actually being very central to people's lives. Victoria Derbyshire, the presenter, got pillarized for saying that she was going to, whether there were restrictions or not, go in and see her elderly relatives and that no one was going to stop her. She was forced to apologize and retract. But actually she's saying what most people think, which is the elephant in the room is whether you send the heavies in to police how many people are around the Christmas turkey or whether we have this sort of trade-off of allowing people to have a few days in exchange for lockdown, people are going to bend and shape the rules around them. The question is, why isn't the government looking at this reality and saying, okay, how can we work around this? How can we make this viable? And instead just going down this very one track route of having no flexibility in relation to how to deal with this pandemic. No one is questioning that this virus is real. No one is questioning that this virus isn't scary. It is, and we don't want it to spread. Now, moving forward from that, how do you deal with people getting burnt out after months of lockdown, desperately wanting to see their families and still wanting to, you know, not throw old people and vulnerable people under the bus. There has to be at least a space to discuss these things. I think it's important to just realise how crazy this whole discussion around Christmas is. Well, we're eight months into this lockdown of varying different degrees now we all became quite accustomed to it quite quickly i tend to think we've all kind of got a version of stockholm syndrome in relation to this that we kind of miss the significance of a government saying that we might give you five days off to see your family (laughs) around christmas and since then it's even taken the form of a kind of negotiation you saw these messages coming out of public health england that for every day that we would be allowed off the restrictions for christmas would result in five further days of restrictions further down the line you've seen this despite the government saying that the national lockdown is definitely going to end at the beginning of december that basically lockdown will continue on under other means that all of the country will be put into at least tier two so again no households mixing in order to get that kind of one more heave before Christmas. And just quite aside from some of the questions around coronavirus and and spread, we need to recognise and not get used to this state of affairs. It's Mm. completely inverted the whole principle of liberty in this country, the idea that you're allowed to do what you want unless it's expressly prohibited. We're now in completely the opposite situation where basically everything is assumed to be prohibited until you're told that you're allowed to be able to do it. This is really, really serious. And it's just been so striking how also on top of that, how out of touch so much of this discussion is. Some people, some of the real lockdown fanatics, Piers Morgan, et cetera, are getting very animated by the idea that we might even be allowed to have something resembling a normal Christmas at all, you know, all for the sake of a roast dinner or whatever. I think fundamentally, one of the primary reasons, at least, that the government 
is wanting to ease the rules around this, aside from no one wanting to be the first person since Cromwell to ban Christmas, is the fact that people weren't going to follow it. As, yeah. as Ella says, it's ridiculous to think that people weren't going to go and see their family over Christmas. And the choice here is between, you know, just mass disobedience to the rules <laughs> and it not being enforced and them trying to allow some respite there. And also some of these suggestions that we've been discussing about how to make it slightly more COVID secure, as Ella was talking about the tree thing, the windows thing, is the time story on that was absolutely fascinating reading because it talked about, again, this idea that you should open up all your windows when you've got people around. Not only was the government's spokesman actually asked a question of whether or not people should be advised to wear jumpers during this, in which they <laughs> wouldn't be drawn on that question. It was up for people themselves to decide, which is which is nice. Libertarian streak right there coming through. Absolutely <laughs> incredible. And then the following paragraph points out the fact that they're not going to offer any extra help with winter fuel bills. Again, this is just so utterly bizarre, this idea that people would be gathering outside trees in their back garden or opening up all the windows all day long on Christmas Day with elderly relatives around and all the rest of it. It's the authoritarianism of all of it, but it's also just the absurdity of all of it that people mm. would actually follow these rules to the letter. And I think given that not only do people need a bit of a respite from all these restrictions, but also in the midst of this kind of one more heave before Christmas, you know, the hospitality sector is in real trouble, as we've been talking about. A lot, a lot of them really rely on Christmas, people pying into pubs and restaurants, you know, work dues, all this sort of stuff. And it looks like they're going to be denied all of that. And again, more and more jobs are going to be lost as a consequence of that. So... Again, it's amazing that we've gotten to a situation where given all of this, this is presented as either something that's very generous yeah. <laughs> or something that's also reckless, despite being very generous. It just, it just speaks to how mad this whole situation is eight months in. The exchange of one day of freedom for five days lockdown, I think is one of the most amazing statements we've seen of this pandemic. And there, there has been quite a lot. I mean, they really are just pulling this stuff out of thin air now. Everyone would understand that this is the first time we've dealt with this virus in winter it would be perfectly okay to say, we just don't know. It's a bit of a risk, but it's a bit of a trade-off. But instead you have this kind of bizarre modeling and this pretend certainty about what's going to happen. We don't, we just don't know. And I think that, you know, most people would be willing to take the risk. As you said, Tom, I think if you were a lockdown supporter, it would probably be sensible to call for this reprieve because once you do have the entire country disobeying the rules, then, you know, what do you do for January, February and March? I think once people dip their toes in a little bit and bend the rules slightly, then it's just basic kind of psychology, basic kind of behavioral science that, you know, then people are less rigid going forward. So even if you were a strict Piers Morgan COVID fanatic, then you would you would see the logic in loosening things up a bit, or at least, you know, just giving people a break. I think choice is a really key part in all of this because, you know, as we've had now months of experience of dealing with not just this virus, but dealing with the restrictions around the virus. And as Tom said, we've all sort of in our own way gotten a bit used to it. But the thing that has been lacking throughout is the question of choice and people's ability to make choices themselves and be trusted to make those choices. So the whole question around the sort of December Christmas period is, can you enable people to make sensible choices and to be trusted to make sensible choices? For example, if you have the resources available, the testing resources available, and you allow a family to test and they will test negative, why not give them the ability to make a choice to go and see 
their elderly relative if they are able to do it in a safe way. And that is a kind of a best of both worlds and everyone's happy. The problem is, I think the government is hell bent on this idea that unless you really minutely and ridiculously police every part of people's lives, whether it's, you know, offering official advice on whether or not to wear a jumper or having, you know, the, as we've seen throughout the pandemic, kind of skirmishes between whether you can trust people to meet in six or groups of eight or groups of four, centering the response to this pandemic around a trust in the public is crucial. And I know I'm sort of doing wishful thinking here because it's also lacking. Part of the problem is the moment, the only input from the public we have is these kind of infuriating blind polls where one minute it says one thing and another minute it says another thing. I mean, I don't understand who they're talking to in these polls, but it's definitely sure that the government hasn't got a sense of what their average person really feels about this, which is that they're worried about the virus. It's nerve wracking looking at the numbers coming out from SAGE, you know, about the fact that common sense says that the rising number of infections plus the winter months, plus this being a disease that affects people with respiratory conditions the picture doesn't look good and we don't want it to get worse. But how do you deal with it still enabling people to make choices to help us all get out of this together? I think that the trust deficit in this pandemic has been one of the government's biggest downfalls. And it really could turn that around by start making policy, not just policy, but making political decisions, centering around an idea that we trust people to be sensible. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.